The following program was made possible by the generosity of those who have determined to hold fast to the true Roman Catholic religion, as expounded by the Roman Catholic Church before the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called New Mass. Father, and to the Son, and the Holy Ghost. Come, Holy Ghost, fill the hearts of thy faithful, and kindle them the fire of thy love. Set forth thy spirit, and they shall be created, and thou shalt renew the face of the earth. Let us pray, O God, who didst instruct the hearts of thy faithful by the light of the Holy Ghost. Grant us by that same spirit to be truly wise, and ever to rejoice in his consolation. Through Christ our Lord, Amen. May the divine assistance remain always with us. And may the souls of the faithful departed through the mercy of God rest in peace. Amen. And O Mary, seat of wisdom, pray, pray for, for us. Then of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Ghost. Amen. Hello, and welcome to What Catholics Believe. I am your host, Thomas Nagley, and with me tonight is Father William Jenkins. He's a member of the Society of St. Pius V. He's also the pastor of Immaculate Conception Church right here in Norwood, Ohio. Hello, Father. How are you? Very fine, Tom. Thank you. Very fine. Good. Just grateful for a blessed... Holy Week mm-hmm. and Easter Week now. So wishing everyone a very blessed Easter season, lasting all the way until Trinity Sunday, which I understand is June 16th. So we have a lot of celebrating to do, holy celebrating, to celebrate the great event of our Lord's resurrection, his great triumph, the Ascension, Pentecost Sunday, all of that. So thank God we can. Yes, Father, definitely. Well, Father, I thought we could get into some emails tonight. It's been a bit since we have answered some of these. So I'd like to start with a follow-up to the vaccine program that we aired a couple weeks ago. And we had a viewer write in and say that your answer uh, concerning vaccines in that video really makes me wonder. What is the difference if one uses an aborted baby itself or uses its parts? This answer could be used to sell baby parts, too. The people who purchased the parts were removed from the abortion, and the abortion was not carried out for the selling of the parts. So those who purchased the parts to help others aren't at all guilty because they only received the parts and didn't abort the baby themselves. Father's answer can open a whole series of excuses for the use of aborted babies. So what's your response to that, Father? Well, I, I can see what I th- what I think is their point. I'm trying filling in some gaps. You know? um, I th- I think her argument is that uh, that my point was that the abortions were not done uh, for the sake of the research, and um, that they were completely independent. That they they occurred. Uh, in any case, because the mothers were exposed to rubella, and the fear was the children also were uh, infected, and in fact, they were. You know? uh, so the idea I think she's making is, well, if it's okay to use the uh, remains of those aborted children for this research, why could we not argue today that Planned Parenthood could do the same thing? with the abortions that are performed. Uh, and then Planned Parenthood sells the parts of the baby's bodies uh, to research uh, companies, right? 
And at least I, I think that is what the argument is, okay? And uh, I would say just in general that the 1960s situation is very different from anything we would know as, as Planned Parenthood today. Um, the fact that these fetal cells, I think one uh, researcher received uh, kidney cells from a child and another uh, lung cells, perhaps. Um, uh, one from England and one from Sweden found their way somehow to Philadelphia. I don't really know what the business transaction was, uh, or the scientific, um, uh, the, the the whole idea of acquiring these cells for scientific research. I don't know what the process was, okay? But it's clear that the abortions took place uh, without any reference to the research, you know, or the research without any reference to the abortions, uh, which happened anyway. But, you know, when you, when you talk about what Planned Parenthood is doing in aborting the hundreds of thousands of babies, I mean, this is part of their business plan. Um, one cannot say that the abortions are not related directly to the selling of the parts of the babies. Um, according to, uh, Delighton and his, uh, undercover videos and, you know, the, the interrogations he's getting, the answers provided by these Planned Parenthood people. Uh, and, and we're talking about higher placed people. We're talking about uh, people who are actually movers and shakers in the Planned Parenthood structure. But they actually take orders. They, they, they have orders for certain organs <laughs> and, uh, and certain, uh, bodily structures that they fulfill and uh, th there's no doubt, but the, the, this is all of a piece. This is part of their business plan. This is the source of their revenue. And um, so th this is quite different from what we're talking about in the 1960s. You know, one might think that I'm trying to whitewash what happened. I'm not. It's murder. Clearly, it was murder back then. It couldn't be done in this country because it was absolutely forbidden in the early 60s. But in England and Sweden, they, have it, they obviously allowed it. And uh, I guess, again, it was a, a mother who could decide because that's how it's portrayed that the mother in England and the mother in Sweden decided that the baby would die, it'd be aborted. Um, but uh, there, there, I don't see her argument. I mean, I see possibly on the surface of it without really looking into it, there could be considered some sort of similarity, but there really is none. Um, to abort a baby as the, as Planned Parenthood does, as their, their business plan. I mean, that's, that's where they make their money, basically. They don't really give, uh, care, uh, prenatal or postnatal care. Um, they make their money on the hundreds of thousands of abortions they do every year. And the government money, the funding that goes directly to them. Uh, much of their money actually is spent uh, supporting, uh, again, politicians who support them, which is um, the highest level of corruption I think you can arrive at, you know, in terms of, uh, I can't imagine how the American public uh, could, for an instant, consider this to be legitimate, you know, but, you know, um, 
all the talk about defunding Planned Parenthood and all the opposition it meets uh, from the Democrats, many Republicans, and also from the courts, right? It's like the, the, the sacred cow, as it were, that has to be protected at all costs. But that is, that is the, the uh, unholy anti-sacrament of abortion, of uh, a, a, a satanic cult, really. This is what we're dealing with. We're dealing with something really truly diabolical. I'm not whitewashing this, this whole situation at all. The question, though, a very specific question, is it or can it be legitimate uh, or must it be sinful, on the other hand, for people to take advantage of the existence of vaccines now against deadly diseases, <clears throat> which is, of course, uh, obviating from the question of whether these vaccines are really beneficial or if they're beneficial enough to be uh, to offset the dangers. I mean, there are many other chemicals, I understand, that are added to these vaccines now, which raise a whole set of questions, you know, apart from the legitimacy of using a vaccine that could save many lives, the lives of many children. Uh, or would it, is it necessarily immoral to use these vaccines at this point because of the origins of the, of the vaccine and the research that was done? And according to the principles the church has given us in her moral theology, if, if, there would be a proportionate reason to justify using the, these vaccines if they were truly beneficial. And, uh, and um, not that it, it ignores the fact that there was an evil at the, at the root of it, but the collusion or the... Um, um, the, uh, the, you know, the, the, the uh, responsibility for the original evil is not is not going to taint those who use the vaccines to protect their children against these terrible diseases. Um, no, I think one could make the argument that the, the history of virtually wiping out diseases that at one time were endemic or threatened to become epidemic is a fact. I mean, you know, we look at the polio vaccine and we look uh, at what uh, America was going through, the United States of America was going through with the, the risk, of, risk of polio. And we realize that uh, there was a great benefit, a, a tangible benefit to it. But again, you know, you have to look at the, the secondary effects also and ask yourself, well, can, can the results... Uh, the benefits come at too high a price. One can ask that question. I'm not getting into that. Uh, that is not my province. The question here is morality and Catholic principle. The Catholic principle would allow the use of it if, if it would actually, at this point, save lives because the there is no, uh, certainly no direct, and at this point, even no indirect connection between the use of the vaccine and you know where they derive them from. Mm -hmm. The if crime I... at, the, at the root of it. Mm -hmm. And I think one of the biggest differences between these two um, these two instances where you have the the selling of the the baby's body parts and the the, the vaccines uh, derived from the, the fetal cells is there's such a difference like you said with the tangible good they're actually with these vaccines hopefully there is some some sort of tangible good at least they're supposed to be that that's the intention uh, to come from that whereas these the selling of these these baby parts there's there's no 
real legitimate scientific research being done with these with with these aborted baby parts there's no tangible good or benefit coming from that they're, they're just well, they're looking for cosmetic uh, you know looking for chemistry mm-hmm. uh breakthroughs with regard to cosmetics and, and, and so on it, and there's there's so much just um, <coughs> nothing more than essentially just mad scientists doing silly foolish experiments just not that long ago there was a uh, it came out that our that our government is funding. They just renewed some some sort of contract with a laboratory who is taking all of these aborted uh, fetal mm-hmm. cells and, and parts from here, and they're they're simply just injecting them in mice mm-hmm. and, and rats and just just mm-hmm. all of these different things, just trying silly, pointless experiments, just essentially to see what happens. Mm-hmm. Um, just just playing around with them essentially, and they're not even they don't even have any sort of tangible benefit, no, no good goal that they're aiming for anything like that they're essentially just using these to play around with them just see what happens just have fun with it and that's not science at all no no it's a caricature of science yeah and um it's utterly irresponsible and highly immoral of course to do that um you know though one one could argue as i've heard some people say well if you say it's okay to use the vaccines derived from the cells of these children who are aborted uh, that it, that will encourage abortions. It will encourage abortion for medical research purposes. Mm-hmm. But uh, the point you're making, uh, I think, uh, at least implicitly, is that that is not what's actually happened. Though mm-hmm. uh, there may be a veneer of claim, you know, somewhere along the line, but it's only a veneer, and it's a it's a falsehood. The fact is that the major vaccines that have been produced have all been produced from these initial line of cells from these two isolated abortions. And in fact, it did not unleash a torrent of abortions uh, to, uh, you know, provide cells for true scientific study. It's just not not the case at all. That's right. Um, and the, the fact that, you know, these companies are buying these... Uh, the parts of these aborted babies from Planned Parenthood and Planned Parenthood is making I believe, millions of dollars from this trade um, in baby parts. Uh, it is, it's right. They're, they're providing it for laboratories around the world that just want to um, um, do, do some goofy, you know, crazy experiment that uh, is of no value whatsoever but it's almost along the line of frankenstein and uh, you know something very evil yes mary shelley could have written a very good write-up on on planned parenthood well father let's move on to another email we've had this one for a while now and it's from a faithful viewer who who says uh, that the shows are great but I know my conservative Nova sort of family would never dream of listening to them because of the introduction in which you state, uh, quote, the disasters of Vatican II and the so-called new mass, end quote. She says, this is a stumbling block for would-be Catholics. When they hear this disasters of Vatican II, it turns them off. They don't want to listen to anything else you have to say. Even though she says that being a conservative Nova sort of Catholic, they do, they would agree with a lot of what you have to say. So she asked, Father, is the show aimed at traditional Catholics exclusively is its intention to arm traditional Catholics with the truth so that we can bring others to the truth. Uh, she says, I'm definitely not asking you to be ecumenical or to beat around the bush, but what do you think about this idea of um, 
you know, saying the disaster in the Vatican to the so-called new mass. What do you think about that idea, t- turning off conservative Novus Ordo Catholics, would-be Catholics? Well, I don't know if this dear writer has actually had that happen. Uh, evidently, she has tried it, to get family to watch, and they seems so. hear that part, and they don't like it. Um, well, uh, Tom, I would just have to say, though, that uh, she, she says they would agree with a lot that is said. But if they don't believe, if they don't understand that their disaster is that a result from Vatican II, if they don't understand that, if they don't see the connection between uh, the crisis in the church today and Vatican II, I don't see how they're going to agree with much else that is said. And the so-called new mass, I mean, that's they referred to it as the Novus Ordo, the new order. So... Um, you know, basically using the uh, terminology that uh, they themselves have used, even even uh, Benedict XVI, and so they've talked about they've talked about the things that have resulted from Vatican II that have been very bad and not foreseen or intended. He says, you know, but the Vatican II has not achieved the, what it promised. And it's been sort of uh, waylaid, you know, and he's, that's why he introduced his hermeneutic of continuity to offset the, uh, the other radical spirit of Vatican II. So again, I, I'm a little bit puzzled um, uh, as far as evidently her relatives or acquaintances' reaction, because I just don't see how, if they, if they can't see that Vatican II has, has poisoned, poisoned the church, right? Mm-hmm. And has produced the disasters that were, were, that I would think that they would recognize now. And that the, the so-called new mass is, uh, exactly that, right? There's the so-called new mass. I just don't see if they can't get past that, how they could agree with anything that I say. <laughs> I'm sorry. I, I um, I mean, if she wants to edit that out or tell them to plug their ears <laughs> and not hear that part, I, I guess you can do that. But I, it seems to me that the people we're, uh, we're really talking to are the traditional Catholics who already understand much of the situation, just looking for more information or confirmation, or looking for conservative Novus Ordo, Again, she might say, well, you know, that would, that's a turnoff to say that. But uh, the, nonetheless, conservative New Order Catholics, you still have the faith and realize the church is in a state of crisis. And they've begun to understand why. And they associate it with Vatican II and the New Mass. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So uh, I guess I'd have a few questions for her if she were here, but uh, she's not, so I can't ask her. <laughs> I just uh, puzzled uh, by that. Okay. Kind of, okay. I, but I again, you know, I, I would say if she thinks that there is content in the programs that her relatives would be interested in, maybe she should record it and just kind of edit it, edit that part out. <laughs> okay. Um, okay. All right. Well, then uh, next next email, Father. This is a, a great. Question it might be a rather tough one to answer. What's very practical and uh... and by the way, if I may say, you know, I'd, I'd be interested in hearing what other people had to say about that too, because there are others who might have the same experience, mm-hmm. and I would find that very helpful. To 
Okay, sure. Yeah. Um, well, for this email, Father, this uh, is from a traditional Catholic viewer who says that they are in a relationship with a Fenite, and uh, they are considering marriage with this person. But they want to know, Father, should they go ahead with their plans? And they write, I'm wondering if Feniism is an actual heresy. Should one avoid relationships and contact with the Feniites as we do with heretics? Uh, or is, is there some allowance for leeway on the thought uh, of uh, the baptismal desire issue in Father Feni? So what's your thought on this, Father, a traditional Catholic uh, in a relationship with a Feniite? Well, this uh, person talks about, uh, you know, shunning people who are heretics. Well, we interact with people who are not of our faith. We don't shun them all. I mean, there is a class of excommunicated persons who are, who are known as the excommunicati vitandi, who are named as such by the church that we must avoid them because they are so dangerous to the faith. But the church never tells us, well, avoid inter any interaction with Baptists, Lutherans, or you know, even Zoroastrians, you know, have no contact with them whatsoever. Um, so we don't have to shun all these people. If they were a danger to the faith, then of course, you know, the, there would be a moral principle requiring us to uh, protect our faith and the faith of those who depend on us from bad influences, no doubt about it. On the one hand, but then on the other hand, the church wants us to convert these people to the faith, if they have goodwill. And um, uh, then we we should have a strong enough faith to be able to lead them to the true faith. And you can't do that by shunning them, necessarily. As far as the Feniite situation, we that's something very dangerous because they are accustomed to quoting and misquoting uh, misquoting either by uh, by actually fabricating quotes, by altering the quotes from papal statements, uh, by misrepresenting the quotes and misinterpreting them, or taking them completely out of context. Whatever serves their purpose, we find. And the Fidiite error is certainly uh, one of the, uh, kind of tops the list these days as far as people who are very ardent for it, but uh, wrongly so. And uh, the, you know, I would just warn this person, you have to be very, very careful. I would personally not even consider marrying somebody who was a Fenite. Well, obviously I wouldn't. But I, <laughs> I, <hope> I, not. <laughs> I would not advise them to even consider marrying anybody who is a Fenite because I find that that is often just the tip of the iceberg too, that there are other issues, okay, <coughs> that they have. <coughs> because I find they're so unreasonable, you can hardly talk to them and hardly discuss the matter with them. It's almost, um, yeah, I don't know what the word is to use, uh, it's almost like a mania. Um, and they often resort to, um, you know, character assassination and ad hominem arguments, um, beginning calling people names if you don't agree with them. Uh, Father Feeney himself was very, very mixed up about this. You know, he wrote, uh, what is it, The uh, uh, the Bread of Life. Mm -hmm. And in the course of that booklet, which is a collection of his lectures over a year's time, he actually presents his teaching 
at three different times, in three different ways, and giving three different explanations that are mutually opposed to one another. Uh, if one were to read that through, and I'm not necessarily recommending it, um, but uh, I have read that through. And I found that early on, he, he poses the question. He has a rather interesting didactic method where he starts posing the question. Well, is there such a thing as baptism of desire, a baptism of blood? Can you be put in the state of grace by baptism of desire and baptism of blood? Can you save your soul by these means and so on? He goes through this list of questions. He actually does this kind of routine uh, three times, three different times in the course of the year's lectures. And each time he comes in with, with a different can, uh Ultimately, he says, no, you can't be saved. You can't save your soul this way. But he gives three different reasons, none of which has anything to do with Catholic doctrine. And, uh, you know, at one point, he starts out by just absolutely desiring, denying that you can be put in the state of grace by having a baptism of desire. Absolutely denying it. And the next time, he concedes that you can be put in the state of grace by baptism of desire, but you can't remain that way. And because it's too hard. And then a third time says, yes, you can be uh, actually put in the state of grace by this. You can receive the grace of sanctifying grace by baptism desire. But if you die, even if you die in the state of grace, you still can't go to heaven. You wouldn't go to hell, but you wouldn't go to heaven either. And he even asked himself, well, where do you go? And he says, I don't know. Uh, now, we know that purgatory is only temporary. Right, So if he's talking about a lasting state of the soul, a permanent state of the soul, other than heaven and hell, he's introducing a new doctrine to the faith. And uh, this is why Father Feeney was called to Rome to answer. Because he himself was confused and very confusing and confusing a lot of people. And he refused to go, uh, to go to Rome to answer for what he was saying, which I find absolutely reprehensible. And the argument that, that people who want to defend him use is that, well, he knew they were against him and that, you know, this would end badly and that he would be treated badly and who knows what. But, you know, if he believed this was the truth, he would have, you'd think he'd have considered a moral obligation to go and stand up for the truth of the faith of the Vatican. I can't imagine what excuse could possibly be used to exonerate him from, you know, a sense of responsibility of being called there to stand up for the faith and refusing to go because it would not end well for him. You know? <laughs> I'm sorry, but this, uh, I'm not, I'm not sorry for saying so, but I'm sorry for him that, <laughs> um, I'm saying I'm sorry for people to defend that. Um, it would really was. There are those who would like to say, like Michael Royce now, that it's not about, doctrinal areas, and I was not excommunicated because of heresy, but the fact is, he was called to answer on a point of Catholic doctrine, and he refused to go and answer. Mm -hmm. And this is very bad. Yes. Uh, for any priest, let alone a, a, you know, someone who was considered a theologian, a Jesuit theologian, to go and answer. I mean, one can be sympathetic with Father Feeney because he saw the liberalism and he saw the idea of baptism of desire being expanded to the point where anybody who has any nice thought about God at any point in his life is automatically, you know, going to be saved by baptism of desire. Uh, yes, uh, 
we would stand together in condemning that, absolutely. But for him to then turn around and simply deny the existence of such a thing, what the church referred to as baptism of desire, is absolutely uncalled for, unconscionable. And as they say, he himself wrestled with it and could not come up with a, a, a consistent explanation of his position on it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so um, there is, um, there's just no way to defend, defend him that I can see. And, and I, would, I would be very wary, uh, more than very wary of getting romantically involved. Mm-hmm. And I would encourage anyone to be very wary of getting romantically involved with someone who would, uh, holds on to the finite uh, idea and, um, and shows no openness to uh, discuss and, and change his way of thinking. Mm-hmm. And I know, Father, that you've made this point before in regards to the unity of traditional Catholics today. You know, you say, despite all of this division that we have, that if you got all traditional Catholics together, they would essentially agree that we believe in the Catechism of the Council of Trent. That That is mm-hmm. our traditional Catholic faith. And all traditional Catholics would agree on that, except perhaps the, the Phineans. Except the Phineans. The Phineans. And I think that, that just shows how, how dangerous this and is. Precisely because the Catechism of the Council of Trent says the Church is not um, anxious to immediately baptize adult converts mm-hmm. because they're not in the same danger as a child. Because they can have baptism of desire, and it doesn't use the expression, but it does say that if a, an adult catechumen were to die with the intention to be baptized, but did not receive the water of baptism through no fault of his or her own, that that person's intention to receive the sacrament and and that person's repentance of sins uh, would avail them unto a justification from sin and grace, and sanctifying grace. That's what the Council of Trent says. You're right. I, I said that that is the, the one uh, we would all, as traditional Catholics, agree on the teachings of the Catechism of the Council of Trent, the Roman Catechism, with the exception of the Phineans. Mm-hmm. They would disagree with that. They would say they would disagree with the Church. They would disagree with the Council of Trent. St. Pius V, they mm-hmm. would say that these catechism, this Catechism of the Council of Trent, it's not infallible. It's... Um, oh. it, you know, and all of that, but I think that just shows how how dangerous this is, and that it's not Phineism, whatever they want to call it, is not 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 traditional Catholicism. It's not it's not the same faith that we have, and I think that it's just it's so very dangerous. I, I once had a Phineite tell me that Father Feeney was the greatest theologian of the 20th century, and it's just a laughable statement to to think here you have the 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 greatest theologian of the 20th century, and yet he's being called to Rome to testify before the world uh, his 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 great theology and he refuses and and michael voris and the, the videos that you mentioned in his vortex videos he he says that um uh, just paraphrasing here but the reason that father feeney didn't go is because the charges against him were not enumerated they were not clarified and he had a right to know exactly what the charges were and uh they didn't specify they didn't clarify them he had a right to know and this is why he didn't go it, it, it's it's just laughable. It's, it's 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 no excuse at all. And, you know, he he drives tries to drive this point home that yes, he was excommunicated, but not as it's often believed. He was not excommunicated for heresy, as if there's uh, you know making light of the fact that yes, he was in fact excommunicated. That doesn't change that fact. And uh, there's there's just so much wrong here. It's just so dangerous. Right, and there's so much nonsense as you point out. Brought up, tried to 
blow smoke in people's eyes, you know, and make them think it's it's really okay, but it's not okay. It's not. It's very wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, Father Feeney himself, um, uh, in imposing, well, I mean, one can go to the, um, to the the bread of life, and and look this up and, and check it out if they want to. I mean, I. I, I hesitate to recommend anybody going there and, and reading it because they can be waylaid, they can be misled by it. But I think if anybody reads it honestly, as a Catholic, they'll see, you know, he really does keep changing his story here. And he finally does admit that the baptism of desire can put you in the state of grace. Uh, and you can die in the state of grace and still not go to heaven. But you won't go to hell either. And I think any, anybody who's a Catholic who is the most fundamental knowledge of the Catholic faith would realize that's wrong. That that just flies in the face of everything the church teaches us about the state of sanctifying grace. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, these are things that people can verify that are wrong with the Fenite position. But I find that they're just so willful, they're so obstinate, so pertinacious in this, they will not yield in any way. Yes. And uh, that, I think... Uh, is a very bad, bad basis for a marriage <laughs> to be marrying uh, that error and to be marrying that whole attitude. Mm-hmm. Okay. All right, uh, let's move on then. Father, this viewer says, could you please do a video, if possible, explaining for simple layman communicatio in sacris from the perspective of Catholic moral theology as well as from canon law? Well, that's quite a treatment, you know. Communicatio um, in sacri means, means communication in sacred things, okay? And it has to do with Catholics taking part in non-Catholic worship, basically. Catholics are absolutely forbidden to take active part in any non-Catholic worship. For a Catholic to, to take part in non-Catholic worship would make that Catholic subject to being sus- suspect of heresy. It can go all the way from the suspicion of heresy to a Catholic being automatically excommunicated. If a Catholic were to try to get married before, let's say, a Lutheran minister, the Catholic would be, well, not only would the marriage be invalid, but the Catholic would be immediately, ipso facto, excommunicated from the Catholic Church. So that's a participation in non-Catholic worship that is, you know, certainly consummated, as it were. <coughs> and explicitly condemned by the church and, and uh, penalized, censured with excommunication. Um, the question here is, can a Catholic participate, uh, even by presence, even passively? And the answer is, there are circumstances under which a Catholic could be present for a Protestant ceremony. If some you know, Protestant friends are getting married, the Catholic could conceivably be present there uh, as long as he or she did not do anything that would indicate a, a, they're there to worship. Okay, they're there to certainly witness something, but not in a religious sense. Um, um, ordinarily in the old days, though, uh, a Catholic would be obliged to get the permission of the local bishop, the Catholic bishop, to allow that even. And there were circumstances under which Catholic bishops would give that permission. Um, and yes, these days we can go. We can go on that. And, uh, uh, you know, if you read the old uh, traditional Catholic moral theologians, 
some of whom even were considered rather rigorous, like Dominic Preur. Um, you know, he would say that a Catholic could be a pallbearer at a non-Catholic funeral for someone for whom he really has a, a reason to show particular affection or particular respect to the individual. And no one would misconstrue that here in the United States of America, showing that I became a Methodist because I'm carrying the remains of my, you know, my boss or, you know, something like that. I'm just showing respect, you know, for, um, but again, uh, you know, it, it was considered to be even then, um, uh, kind of, you know, a touchy sort of thing, a, a very, uh, sensitive sort of thing. So that one would ordinarily have to go to the, uh, to the local bishop to get authorization to do that just to be sure they weren't getting a scandal. I mean, what, 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 what is the least we can say about this? Well, the least we can say about a Catholic taking part, let's say, let's say a Catholic today, uh, takes part in a Seder or Passover supper. Okay. Let's say a Catholic has a Jewish friend. Okay. And they're invited to a, a Seder meal with the Jewish family. Okay. Now there are, you know, a lot of Jewish people are very liberal, reformed Jews. They don't even necessarily see it as a religious exercise, necessarily. It's more like a cultural thing. It's uh, our people. And so it's a kind of symbolizes deliverance. I mean, if you ask them, they might not believe in the story, but it's a story. And uh, so I can't really speak for the individual Jewish family, but they have their traditions. And even if they're not observant Jews, that's this particular Tradition seems to be like Catholics and Christmas. And even if you don't practice the faith at any other time, you know, you, you put up the Christmas tree, you decorate the Christmas tree, and you have the manger scene, and it's all part of our shared history or whatever. And there are a lot of Jewish people who see their uh, Passover remembrances pretty much the same way. So they may not even propose it as a religious exercise, okay? But the fact is, it is. I mean, we see that it is. It, well, it's written up in the book of Exodus, right? The Passover. And we see the significance of it as uh, of profound importance for our faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Because the Paschal Lamb, the Passover Lamb, was you know, probably the symbol of our, our Lord. The yearling lamb without, without blemish, bled out its blood, uh, painted on the frames of the door so the angel of death would pass over and spare that family. Um, and um, and th then because of the, uh, you know, the angel of death striking the firstborn of each of the, all of the Egyptians, the, the Pharaoh finally letting the Hebrew people escape from their slavery and setting out for the promised land and I mean, this is all mystical, and it all has uh, great significance as prefiguring our Lord, offering his life for us and his blood shed for us, um, delivering us from the, the consequences of our sin. And we know that the wages of sin is death. So our Lord is uh, delivering us from, the, from our sins, justifying us from sin, saving us from hell, opening up the gates of heaven. All of this is actually foreshadowed by the Paschal Lamb and the annual remembrance of the Passover. 
So when a Jewish family gets together to celebrate that event, even if they don't really have much awareness of the meaning of it, or put much stock in it, you see it as anything more than just like a Thanksgiving meal. Uh, we see it very different. We know what it is, what it really means. And uh, the significance of it is that really the Savior hasn't come. The Messiah hasn't come. The Christ has not come. That they're still longing for the coming of the Messiah, the Savior. And it's not Christ whom they reject. So for a Catholic to participate in that is an implicit denial that Jesus Christ really is the Son of God, that God became man, that he lived and died and, and rose again for us, that he was Christ our Pasch who was sacrificed for us, as St. Paul says, right? It's at least an implicit denial of this. Well, that's a very serious matter, obviously. It's a grave scandal. And a Catholic has to realize that. The Novus Ordo pushes these Seder meals. It really pushes people into these Seder meals which is a, a horrible a sacrilege, a blasphemy against God, but it's pushing its members into these Seder meals. Now, they, they do this, again, with misinformation, <clears throat> fake news. They, they say that, uh, well, Jesus celebrated the Last Supper as a Passover meal with his apostles, right? So when you celebrate a Seder, a Seder meal, you're just putting yourself back at that time with Jesus celebrating the Passover meal, just... You know, you are doing this now just as Jesus did then. But the fact is that the gospel tells us that it was only after the Seder meal was finished that our Lord took that chalice of wine, which was not part of the Seder meal, and took the unleavened bread, and that's when he consecrated them. That's when he said the new and everlasting covenant. It was a very explicit statement that now the Old Testament is closed and finished. Now I'm establishing this New Testament in my blood. This is a new covenant. And in encouraging uh, their, their people to, um, to um, involve themselves in the Seder meals, they're implicitly denying, at least implicitly denying, uh, the fact that Jesus Christ... Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the Savior, the Messiah. Um, so there's an example of Comunicatio and Sacris, which the church would absolutely condemn in the most severe way. Yeah. Again, it makes someone at least suspect of heresy. Okay. All right, Father, I thought we could end with that, unless you have anything else that you'd like to Well, as I mentioned, I think we really ought to talk a little bit about the bombings in Sri Lanka, you know, I thought we should talk about that because I think it's very pressing and, uh, um, you know, it's interesting to see. Uh, now they're talking about the, the death toll of reaching, uh, surpassing perhaps 300 people who died in these bombings of the, the New Order churches in Sri Lanka. One Protestant church was bombed too. And hundreds are maimed and wounded. And, of course, the, um, the news media did not want to uh, name Islamic terrorists. They were doing everything they could to avoid this. But they were also trying desperately, the politicians, even to name Christians as the victims. So here we have a case of the most flagrant terrorism. 
And the politicians and the news media are trying to avoid naming the, the perpetrators and the victims. They don't want to call them Christians. They're Easter worshipers. That's what they are. They're all, they're all, they all refer to the, the victims of this as Easter worshipers. They just can't seem to choke out the word Christians as victims of this terrorism. And they certainly cannot choke out the word Muslim or Islamic terrorists. That's exactly what we're dealing with here. Christians, the victims of Islamic terrorists, okay? And um, I think people are beginning to catch on that um, that the, the, the media, the mass media, are really in the control of the enemy. And uh, they have a certain, many of them have a hatred for Christ, and therefore a hatred for Christians. And um, do they love Islam only insofar as Islam is useful to attack Christians? Only insofar. Insofar as they say we can use Islam to destroy Christendom. It's useful for them. Maybe they think, maybe the politicians think they can control Islam when they want to. Just using it now, like as the TNT to blow up churches and Christians. That appeals to them. You know, they, 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 they're, they're all in favor of that. They, they cannot, they just cannot even countenance the idea that the fire in Notre Dame, Notre Dame was started by Muslims, uh, even though there were the workers, French workers, who said that they were working on Notre Dame alongside Muslims who were continually voicing their hatred for Christians. And, uh, of course, the catchphrase, Allah Akbar, you know, God is great, which they use whenever they're destroying anything. Christian, which they consider to be a great victory for Allah. This is, you know, people have to, not only Christians, but uh, people in general have to come and see that, you know, we have the face of Christianity, and that is our Lord Jesus Christ. But we also have the face of Islam. It's the face of a terrorist wearing a black hood with these beady eyes looking out and carrying and holding a bloody knife. That's the face of Allah, if you will. That's the only face Allah has. There's no face. You can't give him a face. You can't draw him. Because he didn't become man. He's not a savior. He never did anything for us. Anything, right? Except he, he, he's bloodthirsty. He's bloodthirsty. He, he, he drinks gallons of the blood of his enemies. That's Allah. Okay. That's their Allah. Okay. He's bloodthirsty. He's a bloodthirsty, uh, monster. That's how they portray him. That's how they portray him who believe in him, who worship him. That's how they adore him. You know, the pagans of old would capture their enemies, drag them up, for example, in Mexico City, drag them up the steps of the Hummingbird Temple, uh, smash open their chests, rip out their hearts. You know, this is how they worship their hummingbird god. Well, the Muslims do not want to be considered pagans, you know, because they, they worship one one deity, they say. 
but they worship him in the same way. He is so bloodthirsty, their Allah, that he craves the blood of his enemies. And so anytime that they can, they can use a knife or whatever, a bomb to, you know, slit the throat of an enemy or splatter the inside of a church with the blood, the body parts of their enemy, as they did in Sri Lanka. This is how they worship Allah. This is the supreme worship of Allah, to offer him the, the cruel, vicious deaths of those who don't believe in him, you know. And so um, this is a monster. And people have to realize that those who worship monsters become monsters. They act like monsters. They think like monsters. Um, they are brutal. They are cruel. They are very evil. And they're, they are actually becoming little Allahs, you know, rejoicing over the blood of their enemies. They rejoice in this. Um, it's, it's, it's horrible. You know, I, I'm afraid that at some point, at some point, the Christian people and the Catholics in particular, that's what I'm really talking about, have to realize that those who are their supposed leaders who are keeping them, keeping them down, who are repressing them, who are trying to lead them as like lambs to the slaughter for these vicious, vicious uh, murderers of, um, uh, in the name of Allah, that, that they are the enemy, that this is what is keeping them um, um, constantly preyed upon by these vicious, uh, by the vicious slaughter of these terrorists. And they're going to see those who have uh, undertaken this, this program of bringing in these so-called immigrants here, you can't call them illegal immigrants now, um, have done so precisely for the sake of destroying Christendom. That's the whole point. The whole point is destroying Christendom. And they're going to see at some point and, and I know whether it's going to be too late, where they are totally defenseless. But they're going to have to wake up and see that these are the people who are actually betraying us, are betraying us into the power of our, of our enemies. And they're not like Judas. You know, somebody might say, well, you know, they're, you mean they're, they're like traitors who betrayed Christ? Betraying Christians? No. No, they're worse than Judas. I would never say that those who are orchestrating this whole uh, invasion of Christendom are what's left of it. What they haven't succeeded in destroying other ways, they're, 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 they, they're, they hit upon this expedient to destroy it this way. Uh, I would never accuse them of being Judases, because Judas repented of having shed innocent blood. And he took his 30 pieces of silver and he threw it back into the temple and went and hung himself. Because he couldn't live with himself. He couldn't seek forgiveness, but he couldn't live with himself. Because he, he had at least that much going for him. These people are far, far worse than Judas Iscariot. And um, they are actually orchestrating this mass murder of Christendom and Christians. And they, they want us to be completely passive about this, okay? to uh, pretend it's not happening, it's not really happening, it's not what it appears to be. You know, they want us to buy the, uh, the storyline that they've come up with to keep us from in any way defending ourselves against this. 
and uh, refusing to let them get away with this. And um, I just don't know how much longer they can keep everyone uh, under that spell. Father, what does it say about Francis and his new order church where uh, it's not even implicit anymore. It's now explicit that he is um, condoning this, this Islam, this terrible description that you just gave. He's explicitly condoning that now. And, you know, all he talks about is the migrants, the migrants, the migrants, the poor migrants. We have to uh, let them in. We have to take care of them. And let them have their way. Pity, if you get everything they want. And, uh, and, uh, and ignore everything they do, you know, no matter how vicious it is. Mm-hmm. You just can't. I mean, even, even with Sri Lanka here and the blowing up of the, of the churches that, you know, he supposedly is the pontiff over, right? He can't bring himself to choke out the words, you know, Islamic, uh, Right. Uh, terrorism. Right. You just can't do it. Because God wills this. God wills the diversity can't speak of, the truth. Of, of religion. Oh, absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So again, I mean, these are, these are false prophets. And, um, I'm not saying, you know, that, uh, we should, you know, rise up, you know, and attack. I'm saying, I'm just talking about defense. I'm just talking about basic defense of our families, basically defense of our children. And concerned for what kind of families, what kind of world our, our children are going to be raising their children in. I mean, we have to start thinking about this. If they're not going to let us think about that, we, well, they've just not only disarmed us, uh, they've totally demoralized us. They've taken away everything, our consciences and everything. And we have to start thinking, no, wait, wait, wait. You know, I've got to think about the world that, that I'm leaving for my, uh, you know, a, a, a man, a husband and a father. What he's leaving for his children, a mother and a wife, what she's leaving for her children, the world that they're leaving for to grow up in. And if they're going to grow up as being the slaves of Allah, or the slaves, the slaves of Allah, right? If that's the future they want for their children, then just continue going along. And don't even think about defending yourself. But if you start thinking about defending yourselves and you real then you start realizing that those who are orchestrating this 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 uh this new Holocaust, this real Holocaust, because that's what it is. It really, this orchestrating this real Holocaust <coughs> of Christians have to be resisted, and we can't let this happen. And um, I, I personally think that we should be looking to establish a, a Christian political party in this country that is avowedly Christian. Now I know, I mean, I, I know you've got the heretics and you've got their their. Uh, there, uh, the problems there. I understand that, but I think there's enough uh, enough ground there, um, and enough <coughs> fertile ground for for traditional Catholics also to work. If they stood up and they actually represented their traditional Catholic faith well, I think they'd have tremendous influence. <coughs> but I think somebody should should just stand up and say, look. This is what's going on right now, and we're, we're not going to just um, let it happen. Um, we're not going to let the, the, the charmers, you know, keep us mesmerized by this. Mm-hmm. Um, and we are going to defend ourselves, and we're going to start electing people to office here who are not going to allow uh, simply uh, toe the party line of Francis. Part of the biggest problem we have right now is the Novus Ordo so-called Catholics who are in Congress and in the Senate. And um, a prime example of that, I, I thought, was uh, 
uh, Paul Ryan, uh, Kasich, right? Mm -hmm. um, uh, there, who, who else was uh, here from Ohio? Uh, John, Boehner. John Boehner. The Novus Ordo Catholics will always let us down. Yep. They will never stand up because they are Novus Ordo Catholics. And they follow what these Novus Ordo bishops are saying. And they're selling us out. They've already sold us out. Um, they sold Christ out long ago. So, um, anyway, um, you can see that, um, um, I really do believe it is time that we begin to think about defending ourselves against the, uh, terrorists, foreign and domestic. And when I say domestic, I mean those who are in political power here in this country, who are doing, are sharpening the knife for the Islamists. They're lighting the fuse for the, in, 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 uh, for the Islamists here in the, now in our own country. Mm -hmm. So um, I think we have to start seriously thinking about this. But before we have any claim to, um, um, you know, have the, the willpower, the wisdom, the faith necessary to do just that, uh, we're going to have to start being better Catholic people and living up to our faith more and stop being so worldly. So the reform really does have to start with ourselves. Mm -hmm. Father, thanks for being here tonight. I appreciate your time. Well, you're very welcome, Tom. Well, you asked if there was anything else of interest, so I thought I would throw that, toss that little tidbit in there. That yeah. I think it's time to uh, start doing, putting up some very serious thought to this. Sounds good. Well, well, God bless you all. Thank you, Father. Thanks to all of our viewers as well for watching this episode of What Catholics Believe. Until next time, we ask that you all remember the words of Our Lady at Fatima, to consecrate yourselves and your families to the Immaculate Heart of Mary, and to pray and do penance. Thank you, and God bless you.